Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Pocket Rocket podcast. I believe we are on episode six now, flying through the series. And we are back with Olivia because we had such a wonderful conversation with her last time. And there were so many more things that we wanted to talk about that we had to get her on again. And she kindly said yes. So we have Mads, as always, my partner in crime. And we have Olivia. Hey, guys. Good evening. Good evening. Good morning. Good morning, Good morning Olivia. We're, we're international right now on the podcast. Um, so, yeah, as we were just kind of talking about from um, the last episode, there were a ton more questions um, that we were asked, that we thought of. Olivia, you just came on and said, oh, I had these notes from last time as well. Um, so in the last episode, we talked about and we touched upon uh, PCOS and PMDD. Um, and I had a, a friend, actually, a male friend message me and go, I listened to the podcast, but I got a little bit lost when you started talking about the PCOSs and PMDDs. He said there's too many acronyms. So what's all that about? And I've had a few actual male friends, like a couple of guys in the gym say, oh, I'm a little bit lost, but I like it and I am learning. So I think this would be a really good platform to teach not just the men, but everyone about PCOS, PMDD, and then also touching on some of the myths and misconceptions around um, those disorders, as well as hormonal contraception and just anything and everything that, that crosses our paths. We have this conversation. Let's get into it. So, <clears throat> Olivia, you guide us because this is your area of expertise. But I'm thinking we start with just a really high level description of what PCOS and PMDD are. Yeah, so PCOS and PMDD, um, I, I would liken probably PCOS and endometriosis more to each other in the sense that that is like a more of a hormonal condition. Whereas PMS and PMDD is, yes, we do see reasons why it's occurring because of hormones, but it's not kind of not really the same thing. Um, so PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, that's when women have absent periods or really long cycles. They're not ovulating. They have high androgens and they have cystic ovaries on an ultrasound. So it's called the Rotterdam criteria, and you have to meet two out of three of those to be given a PCOS diagnosis, which, in in my opinion, is complete bullshit. So you have a lot of women who also get misdiagnosed with PCOS. So myself, for example, I'm actually celiac, so I can't have gluten. So for 22 years, I didn't know I was celiac and I was given a PCOS diagnosis because I had really irregular cycles and wasn't ovulating because I was eating gluten. And then all of a sudden I stop eating gluten and I actually have really regular cycles. I have never in my life actually had issues with testosterone or high testosterone, anything like that. And I have a lot of clients who have the same thing in a PCOS diagnosis when they don't have the hallmark classic high testosterone issues they don't have the facial hair they don't have any of that happening so that's why I really look at like the actual criteria and I just think that it's like to meet two out of three of them you can have absent periods for a number of reasons like think of all the women we know who are competitors and don't have periods because mm. they have you know they're under eating or overtraining. 
Um, and you can have cystic ovaries, so that's just undeveloped follicles, for a, for a numerous amount of reasons too. So when you're going through your actual cycle, if anyone get lost, go back to the last episode because we touched on it at the very start. Um, when you're actually having your cycle, you have a portion of it where your follicles are being stimulated to grow. And then you have your LH surge, which is different for every woman, but you have that LH surge, the dominant one presents itself, and that's the one you ovulate with. When you are, when you have PCOS, typically your LH sits higher, which is one of the markers when looking at bloods, when someone's got an absent period, you would look at LH levels in conjunction with everything else to see what is going on here. So if that LH is high, that's the second part of the cycle right? So if that LH is high, those follicles aren't able to be stimulated to actually grow enough. So you have a lot of undeveloped follicles. So that's the cystic ovaries. Um, this, when I was actually diagnosed with PCOS, I was, oh God, I want to say like 19 maybe. And the way my gynecologist described it to me at the time was your ovaries are like think of the outside of an orange how it's got all those little dimples and that's what your ovaries look like and with PCOS what happens is when a follicle wants to come out um, there's a cyst on top of that little hole and that um, that follicle gets caught in there and that's why I don't ovulate completely false completely completely false that's not what happens that may happen in women who actually have cysts on their ovaries um, but completely false so yeah, that's really what's happening with women with PCOS. They're having issues with testosterone. They're having issues with LH being too high. They are not ovulating um, and they're having really long absence cycles. Unfortunately, a lot of women are given that PCOS diagnosis without, like I said, the hallmark high testosterone. And in that case, it's not PCOS. That's super interesting because... These three markers that you're talking about there, then there's two two out of those three can be caused by a number of different reasons. And Absolutely. there's a basic diagnosis there that if you fit two of the three criteria that you're going to be you're going to be diagnosed with this. However, there's only really one of those three criteria that actually really defines you having PCOS, right? Correct. Yeah. That and that's was, um, your... Sorry. No, I was going to say that's the that's the mark of looking at testosterone in your LH, right? Mm. Yeah, so for, for a woman who has absent cycles, she's not ovulating. So she might be having regular cycles as well, where every 30 days, every 35 days, but they're anovulatory cycles. So she's not actually ovulating. She's having a breakthrough bleed, which is the same thing that's happening when you're on the pill. You're just having a breakthrough bleed then that is also an issue because we're talking about having an ovulatory cycle, potentially every second or third cycle. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a bit of an issue when women kept, keep getting a PCOS diagnosis when they don't actually have issues with testosterone or anything like that. I do have some clients who actually do fit the criteria for a PCOS diagnosis and I have a whole lot of others who who absolutely don't. So so with the PCOS diagnosis then, just going into that a little bit further so people understand really what that means, when you say issues with testosterone and therefore the LH as well, can you go into a little bit more detail there? So what are we looking for with their testosterone levels being too high out of physiological range? What, what are we looking for here that defines the PCOS um, 
like criteria with that? Yep. So um, when we're looking at elevated levels of testosterone, it's really individual as to what may actually be happening with, with that woman, because every single woman is going to have a very individual sensitivity to androgens. So that's really important to note that one woman's testosterone might be just outside of range or actually within range and high, but it's enough for her to be having those symptoms. Um in, in terms of the FSH and LH, so when we think about the menstrual cycle and when we actually have like our HPO axis and what happens when we um, our FSH is being stimulated and being released and then our estradiol rises enough to actually trigger that feedback loop and then for our LH to surge, that's just not happening because of all of the excess androgens that we're having, potentially also excess estradiol that we're having because testosterone also aromatases into estradiol. In terms of like what's going on, it's without blood work for that individual, it's also really hard to gauge because there could be so many options and scenarios of what is actually happening, happening with that woman. Unfortunately, when we look at like testosterone as the only marker, it's a real downfall of the Western medical system because we have to look at the precursors to testosterone, which are androstenedione and androstenediol. So those are precursors to testosterone and they're never tested. So when we actually look at how our hormones are metabolized, how our hormones are excreted, we need to know what precursors are actually high or if they're high at all, because if androstenedione and androstenediol, there's no issues with them. And then we've just got an issue with testosterone. Then we need to look at, okay, well, there's no issues with the precursors being high and then testosterone is actually high. So why isn't testosterone being excreted? So you can look at those steroid pathways and you can actually look at what you might need to excrete testosterone. So that's a major downfall in that sense of the testing system and what happens with a lot of women and they just kind of get left in the dust and they just given get given a pill to to manage everything whereas there's so many ways to approach PCOS um so even if you look at like how androstenedione and androstenediol become testosterone we're looking at different enzymes as well so we're looking at 17 beta hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase and 3 beta hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase we're also looking at when we're looking at testosterone to estradiol and how it aromatases, we're also looking at an enzyme there. You might have gene mutations in those enzymes. You might be doing something that actually impacts those enzymes and how they work. So, you know, there's a lot of things that will decrease aromatization. There's a lot of things that will increase aromatization. There's a lot of things that will increase 3-beta and 17-beta hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase and there are a lot of things that will decrease it increase and decrease it so yeah it's a it's a real shame in that sense but that's why looking at real further testing and potentially doing like an oat test if you have a practitioner who knows what they're looking at in that sense or like a hormone specific urine analysis where you can look at all the metabolites is really helpful in terms of this because what a lot of practitioners do, even in like the holistic space, is just go, here is a testosterone clearing supplement to get rid of your excess testosterone, whereas that's not actually what you may need because that's not where the issue may be. I'm sorry for anyone who, who may have gotten lost. I, I, I 
you did say high level. I'm sorry for anyone who may have gotten. No, it's it's interesting. No, it's interesting, and although it's that's really detailed, which is great, and it just shows a level of the level of depth there is to this, which I think is really important to understand. And even if people don't understand the depth, they need to understand that there is depth to this, and it's not just about the fact that you know you might miss your periods and you fit to these three criteria. Like there is more to this, and okay, maybe your natural testosterone level sits high, but maybe that might not be the issue and there's more to look into it than that so I guess the subliminal message here is maybe with people listening to this if they're going to their GP and they're being diagnosed with PCOS is to maybe say okay well why like what are the things what you're saying put me in that criteria and maybe they can understand a little bit more that if it's not their testosterone then maybe it could be something else and maybe to ask for more testing on some of the things um, and if it is their and if it is their testosterone as a marker, OK, well, can we still do some more digging? Can you refer me to a specialist? Can I understand more about this? And maybe for people not just to take the diagnosis of PCOS just as 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 a label and maybe do a little bit more digging and understanding about more of that, um, because if they don't ask the questions, they're probably not going to get any different answers. So I think that's probably the thing to take away from that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's just to complicate it even further because why not um when we actually look at like hormone production we touched on this in the last episode when i was talking about progesterone how i said that cortisol gets prioritized because it's your steroid um your survival hormone sorry that's the same thing with testosterone and the same thing with estradiol as well so cortisol is always going to be produced cortisol is something that also increases glucose because you need that, like you're in that fight or flight. We also see issues with high insulin with women who are PCOS. The overwhelming majority of cases of women who have PCOS also have issues with high insulin. But again, their, their insulin very rarely gets tested and they usually just get given metformin. So they might do blood glucose or HbA1c, which is like your, your risk factor. Um, and then they just get, met, get given metformin or women just don't get those tests at all and get given metformin when they might not actually need it. So in terms of PCOS as well, when you really look at all of the steroid hormones and all of the production, stress plays a huge role on all of it. It's just, it's unreal once you start digging into all of the steroid hormones and understanding just how much stress absolutely fucks everything. So stress and chronic inflammation. So we said last time, stress is stress, obviously. Stress is under eating. Stress is not eating the right quality food. Stress is overtraining. Stress is not managing your sleep. Stress is really shitty relationships, hating your job, living in an environment that has mold, you know, being exposed to a lot of endocrine disruptors because we're also talking about individual genetic variations where you might not be able to process things the same way other people do so all of that plays a huge role in terms of PCOS so it's not just as simple as like cool testosterone's high insulin's high let's just decrease that um, and deal with it so in terms of like PCOS and managing it there are a lot of markers you need to look at to find where the root cause actually lies because that testosterone 
that high insulin, all of that is just a symptom of the root cause. It's the same thing, you know, a lot of women say, I can't lose weight because I have PCOS. Well, no, that's just like a symptom of what's going on. You need to find what the root cause is, deal with it, and then the rest will, will be fixed. Same thing with heavy periods, painful periods. That's a symptom of another issue. Yeah, I think I think that brings us on quite nicely as well to talk about <clears throat> PCOS in terms of what people may find they suffer with. Um, this is something me and Hannah discussed. And there's a lot of conversation around if you've got PCOS, you struggle to lose weight or you maybe gain weight quickly. Mm. But then there's, you know, there's a bit of a back and forth with this around, well, if your testosterone's high, actually, maybe you should be, your body composition maybe should be slightly better. But if you're quite insulin resistant, then, okay, well, that's not a great thing either. So these things don't always work together. And people are... I think a bit confused maybe around that with PCOS as to maybe why you struggle to lose body fat or why you have these symptoms. Um, so that explanation is is helpful as well because I think people just label themselves as well. I've got PCOS, so I struggle to lose weight, and they see it as a lost battle. Like, okay, well I've got PCOS, I can't, I struggle to lose weight, and they and they give up. And it's I quite a that, defeatist attitude, I think. Um, yes. And. And I don't want to shit on anyone that's got PCOS at all. Um, I remember the first time I ever heard of it, I was like 19. And my friend told me she had it and I didn't really know what it meant. But she just went, that's why I'm bigger and I can't have kids. And I was like, oh, that's shit. And that was kind of my first intro into PCOS. And then after that, years and years later, another friend of mine who was very, very slim and could eat a lot also said she had PCOS and she had a, a very irregular bleed she bled a lot um and and she's had two children so I, I mean I've looked it up you can look on the NHS website which is our national health service here and it gives you just irregular periods excess androgens and polycystic ovaries and I'm like cool I know absolutely no more than I did two minutes ago you know so yeah I think it's interesting when if I look at just my circle two friends who have very different descriptions or experiences of it but both have been diagnosed with it is your circle just two friends that's it Mad make that's the best. Too, <laughs> olivia if you play your card right you're gonna make a fourth awesome can't wait <laughs> Um, I was just going to say what, what you said about your friend being told that she can't have kids. I was told the exact same thing. And for any women who are listening who have PCOS, that could not be farther from the truth. Um, a PCOS diagnosis is not an infertility diagnosis. Um, there are many women who get given a PCOS diagnosis and then have accidental pregnancies because they think they're infertile. Um, absolutely, we can see some issues with fertility with PCOS. Obviously, if you're not ovulating, that's a problem. Um, but a PCOS diagnosis is not an infertility diagnosis. So I absolutely want to like dispel that myth for any women who are listening or have been told um, told that because I also know a lot of women who have been told that and then base their life around that, well, no, I don't want kids. You know, I've been told I'm infertile. I don't want kids. And it's like, well, you were told you were infertile at 20. Like what 20-year-old is is in the mental capacity to really think about their future and children and, and what they want to be done. That's not what you're thinking about at 20. So, yeah, that's a gigantic myth that I think needs to be kicked in the ass. 
and then the myth around weight gain or weight loss or being a little bit bigger or or not then obviously what Mads touched upon there with how you would potentially think well if my testosterone's higher then maybe I would hold more muscle tissue and therefore have a better body composition like how does that all play in? I think that's also highly unique as well because it's it people will play too much into the PCOS of okay I can't lose weight because I have PCOS we also have somatotypes we have people who are ectomorphs endomorphs we have people who also just have different body types so yes you have a PCOS diagnosis but every time I hear this I'm like okay but how are you eating are you eating the right amount of protein are you what quality of food are you eating how is your stress management sleep all of that but also when you look at what the HPO axis does and what the hypothalamus does and the hormones it produces, we're also looking at at the thyroid. So has your thyroid been tested? Have we seen if there's optimal function going on there? Are we looking at all your micronutrient and mineral deficiencies? So there's a lot going on um, and I don't pay much mind into I can't lose weight because I have PCOS because I have a lot of clients who have PCOS had so as as an example one of my clients she actually had pmdd got given the pill um pcos as well came off of the pill took her about six to eight months to get regular cycles she gained about 12 ish kilos while she was on the pill and then when she came off of it really struggled to lose that weight we started working together and over the last probably year and a half she's lost about 12 kilos And she is just a, like, she's a larger set woman. Like, she's very strong. She has got very broad shoulders. She used to be a swimmer. Um, She's quite tall. So she's just one of those, like, thick women that is never going to have, you know, a 60-kilo body frame on her because that would just be a skeleton. But she lost weight. She just needed the right, right guidance. So I just look at all of these women and it's unfortunate because a lot of these women, obviously some of them won't be in the position to get that guidance. Some of them can't afford a coach. Some of them, you know, struggle. I understand that. Um, but every single one of these women, like there is hope for you. And if you want to change your body composition, it just requires the right help. I think, uh, I think that gives a lot of hope then um, and does a very sharp 360 or 180 180 on what I said a few minutes ago 360 would not be the right one (laughs) we're like just wrap back around to where we started let's go Um, back to PCOS yeah (laughs) but a good 180 on that kind of stark oh you're going to be heavy you're going to be in fertile and whatever else it may be to actually doesn't need to be that way um and just because you have a diagnosis doesn't necessarily mean that that is actually what's going on with you um yep. no I think that's that's really interesting so if someone wanted to go about checking whether it was PCOS or not how would they go about that say they've had their general checks done and, and the doctor's gone to them you tick these boxes ergo you have that if they wanted to check that what would be their route do you think Um, So I would be looking at fasting insulin. I would be looking at DHEAs. 
I would be looking at testosterone, all of your hormones, so testosterone, estradiol, progesterone. Obviously, if you haven't ovulated, your progesterone is going to be low, but still still check it. You might, If you don't know, you know when you're ovulating or anything like that, you might be at your cortisol, um, at your thyroid as well, a full thyroid panel, not just TSH, but T3, T4, your antibodies as well. And that's where I would be looking at in terms of like, cool, you've been given a PCOS diagnosis, let's figure out what's going on. But like I said, the overwhelming majority of people, not just women, but men in terms of health issues they may have, don't do the basics. They really don't do the basics. And I mean, you would know this, Mads, with like clients that that come on, how many say, oh, I eat so well. And then you look at their food diary and it's like, oh, I just have a sandwich for lunch or, or whatever. And it's like, well, no, but you're not doing the basics and you're surprised that your body's not cooperating. And they have like, you know, a glass of water a day. Yeah, 100%. I think people often also misconcept like, how much food they actually consume in terms of calories Mm. like because people think they're like yeah I eat really well which means they have a healthy tea usually which usually means they come home with their family and they have like they'll cook some veg and they might have some rice and some chicken okay that doesn't constitute like a healthy nutritional diet and or energy balance or any of those things and they're like, oh, yeah, but I did eat a biscuit when I was in the office. And, yeah, I did skip breakfast and I had a croissant from surgeries on the way to work. And I did do this and I did do that. So, yeah, I think I think you're right there that people often think they're doing the right things as well. But if they really actually looked at what they were doing, they would probably quite quickly realise, actually, they probably could be doing a lot better. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's that common thing of, like you say there, I barely eat during the day. I I haven't even had breakfast. And you're like, what did, what did you have on the way to work, though? Well, I mean, I had a, a mocha chocolate frappa latte <laughs> yeah. with all the shit in it. And then you're like, what else did you have with that? Well, a croissant. Right, so you had probably 800 or more calories at breakfast. No, no, I didn't have breakfast. No, you had a frothy coffee and a butter pastry. You did. But some chocolate sprinkles Yeah. And then what happens at 1 p.m. when they're hungry? They have another coffee. They're running between meetings. Can't don't have time to eat. Have maybe a little little muffin or something that's in the office. And then their first source of protein is with dinner, if they even have, you know, protein at dinner. Or if they're, oh, I'm not that hungry. I've been running around all day. Or they go, um. I'm on like a cleanse at the moment, so I'm just sticking with veggies. Okay. Oh, don't start me on juice cleanses. <laughs> Next episode coming up. <laughs> juice cleanses and their fuckery. Juice cleanses featuring Olivia. <laughs> oh, God. That's, the, that's the title of the next episode is Juice Cleanses and Their Fuckery. I like that. It, it will be just 40 minutes of a tirade on my end. I reckon I could tie it up nicely in a 40-minute rant. <laughs> we'll just let you record it and we'll see you later after that. <laughs> Great. <laughs> you guys won't have to stay up then. Um, no, but I think that's a really, really good insight into PCOS. Mads, did you have any more questions on that topic? No, I don't think so. I think that's, I think that's really helpful. I think there's a lot of people who are diagnosed with this and this is why 
even though you went into a lot of detail, Olivia, I think it was important for people to understand that there is a lot more to it than just maybe mm-hmm. what they diagnosed with and that they should be asking more questions. And potentially, if you are diagnosed with it, maybe you don't actually have it. Like, maybe you don't actually have an issue with that. Maybe it's something else. So maybe if you have been diagnosed, diagnosed with it, maybe backtrack a little bit. I'll go back to your doctors and ask why you were diagnosed with it potentially. And maybe do a little bit more searching um, because you may think that you may have slight catastrophe thinking from from thinking that you've got it and it might not even be that. So and even if it is, like Olivia said, it's not a catastrophe. Mm. Um, you likely are fertile and fine. And, you know, depending on what the doctor has said to you, there is there is hope and potentially isn't actually as bad as you might think. So hopefully this gives people a little bit of positivity as well. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously, I mean, there's so many more things we could talk about in terms of PCOS and it's it's you have women who and practitioners who specialize in this and they can talk for 20 hours straight about it. But, you know, we, without, <laughs> without um, mind melting everyone, I think that that leaves everyone in a good enough place to start, you know, researching themselves and start looking into things, because like we said in the last episode, post-pill PCOS that usually about six months after coming off the pill that will start to regulate itself you don't actually have PCOS Um, so a lot of women will come off the pill not have body literacy think they're going to ovulate again hey I haven't had a period in two months go to the doctor doctor says hey you've got PCOS because your androgens at that point might actually be higher because your body's just figuring out what it needs to do again you're not ovulating you have undeveloped follicles because they haven't been stimulated while being on the pill and here is your PCOS diagnosis. You've met two out of the three criteria, or three out of three at that point, because you have regular cycles. And what, is, what do they do? They go back on the pill. So that's also something where it's like you, you didn't actually have PCOS. You had post-pill PCOS. And if you just left it, it would have sorted itself out if you were doing the right things to support it. Yeah, I think that was the, the next question was, mm. okay, was that we, we've got that written down was, okay, so from PCOS then we spoke about post pill PCOS previously and I think you've just wrapped it up quite nicely Olivia but I think one question I had around that was why people are diagnosed with that and just a little bit of an insight as to why they get these increased androgens when they come away from their synthetic hormones from the pill what causes that to happen so why do that why do they get this diagnosis of post pill PCOS and influx and increase of androgens naturally what is it that makes that happen in their bodies well, it's, I mean, it, like I said before, it's highly unique. PCOS without actually increased androgens. You might have just undeveloped follicles and irregular cycles and there's your PCOS diagnosis because technically what we see with the pill is SHBG increasing, which is going to bind to testosterone. So you're going to have lower testosterone. But you are also going to have women who who don't experience that. So really, you've been taking an exogenous hormone that's been impacting your endogenous production. So you've been taking something that's external that's impacting your internal production. And then you stop taking the external. It's going to take time for your hormones to sort themselves out and for all of those pathways to do what they need to do. You know, you've depleted a lot of cofactors and nutrients while being on the pill. Um it takes time for your GnRH receptors in your HPO axis to, to get their sensitivity back and figure out what they need to be doing. It just, like in in the most layman description, it just takes time mm. um, for your body to kind of figure out what it needs to be doing after being suppressed for so long. 
Like, you know, think about um, people who are in a coma and then they wake up and they can't walk, they can't move their toes. They, they need help. Their body's just been catatonic for so long that their muscles aren't really cooperating or moving. Um, so it's the same kind of thing, you know, you've, you've suppressed something for so long, your body just needs a bit of time to figure out what it needs to be doing. I think that's something that's really interesting to know as well, because uh, speaking of my own experience, when I was first speaking to the doctors, they started asking me, like, do you have body hair, like, on your face and on your back and on your chest? And I didn't really, as I say, openly, but I didn't really know a lot about it. But I did know PCOS, there was the kind of the excess hair. And I said to them, I was like, I don't have PCOS. And they were like, no, 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 we're just asking you some questions. I was like, are you asking me these questions because you think I have PCOS? And they were like, oh, we're just trying to rule it out. Um, and I was like, no, I I don't have that. Uh, it's just, yeah. it's just that I'm not working right now. Um, but I think that's good to know because up until the last episode, I'd never even heard of post-pill PCOS. Didn't know it was something that anyone even contended with. Um, yeah. And then kind of that leads us on quite nicely to something that I'm going to say, I'm going to use a blanket statement and say the vast majority of people haven't heard of, and that is PMDD. Um, and I had only heard about it because a friend of mine, another one, I know, Olivia, I'm teaming with him. Oh, so popular. Um, <laughs> yeah, she had, she said to me um, that she had it. And, and I, I was like, what, what is it? What's it all about? She said, well, this was years ago as well, uh, that she said that her periods were so bad, she had like suicidal tendencies um and they were very painful but it was mostly about like this dark cloud that sat over her and she just could not see the light and she couldn't understand why she felt like that um and then it was only when she mentioned to her doctor that for a few days every month um she had a few body piercings and they would start to be rejected and apparently that was linked to her pmdd and it was only when she said i feel suicidal linked with my body jewellery is being rejected that they went oh that's PMDD but before that and years and years she had a feeling suicidal every single month and I couldn't even begin to contemplate how you go about that it's it's so hard so PMDD is premenstrual dysphoric disorder um PMS is premenstrual syndrome so as a start PMDD often doesn't get taken seriously you're often not diagnosed with it. Um, anyone who has PMDD, when they tell people how suicidal they get or how extreme their symptoms are, no one ever takes it seriously. Well, what do you mean you get suicidal? Like that, that's mm. you know, it's just your period. What do you mean? Like it can't be that bad. Like I know I Stop get Stop being such a dramatic too. woman, you know, like Yeah. Um, and it's actually funny because I did another podcast a couple of weeks ago where we, where we talked about PMDD too. And one of my very old clients, you know, five, six years ago, um, she actually messaged me and she said, I never realized that's what I had. I'd actually been given a bipolar diagnosis before I was given 
um, PMDD. Wow. Or even told about PMDD and PMDD I only learned about from that podcast. So I was given a bipolar diagnosis and I'd been to so many doctors, told them this, and it's like, you know, like you said, that cloud overview. So what's happening with PMDD? There's a couple of reasons I believe that PMDD is happening um, and there's obviously a lot more research that needs to occur for this. PMDD, we're looking at after ovulation at that mid-luteal phase. So you have your follicular phase up until ovulation. You know, we can obviously split it down. And then you have your luteal phase, early and late luteal. So when you look at early luteal, everything's rising. And then when you look at late luteal, everything's dropping. From that mid-luteal, from that middle point, we see a huge shift. It starts to be impacted a little bit uh, just before, but we actually see a huge shift. So for about 10 days out of every single cycle, what women with PMDD are suffering with is incomparable to what the majority of women suffer with during their bleeds. It is PMS on steroids. It is suicidal tendencies, suicidal thoughts, a complete inability to regulate emotions. You will cry at the drop of a hat. You will um, be in situations where you want to break up with your partner every single month. You are um, at work and, you know, can't handle anything and just an absolute blubbering mess. It is really, really challenging. Um, and I think obviously the most difficult part is the suicidal aspect. It's incredibly difficult for women. I mean, you're talking about every single cycle going through that. And, you know, I, I know there are people out there who are suicidal all the time, but we're talking about a specific condition where women are going to be feeling this way every single cycle. So then they get put on the pill because the pill obviously um, mitigates that. You're not ovulating. Um, so what we're actually seeing with PMDD is post-ovulation, there's a relationship with progesterone and estradiol and serotonin and serotonin's ability to bind to the receptors. So what happens is serotonin can't bind to those receptors and we're having issues with our mood. What also happens with PMDD is huge huge depletions of B6. So B6 is absolutely critical for mood stabilization. It is like we touched on it in the last episode. It helps convert tryptophan to serotonin. It's essential for the synthesis of your neurotransmitters and melatonin so you can actually sleep. Um, and like I said, it's essential for that conversion of tryptophan to serotonin. So without um, B6, there's a lot of things that aren't working. And then if you think back to that first episode, we talked about all the things the pill depletes. B6 is one of them. And the depletion is significant, where if you are on the pill, you would be better served actually taking a B6 supplement while you're on the pill. And then coming off of the pill, you'd really be looking at therapeutic doses. It's hard to say also as well, like, you know, should you be taking it all cycle? Should you just be taking it after you ovulate? It's very dependent on the individual and what their needs may be. Um, a lot of people, not just women, but a lot of people need 
other B vitamins with B6. So you might need to be looking at a really good B complex and a B6, whereas some people can just tolerate straight B6 and it's fine. So yeah, it's very messy and it's a bit of a clusterfuck when you think about it because a lot of women will have PMDD. They go to their doctor. If they actually get diagnosed, the doctor goes, here is the pill, which obviously lessens the symptoms. The pill depletes one of the mood stabilizing vitamins. And then you come off of the pill, you're in a worse place than you were before. You now have post pill PCOS, you're not ovulating, your B6 is low, all of your cofactors are low, magnesium, zinc, all of these nutrients, minerals, vitamins, all of it's low. And you're not even back to square one, you're 10 spots behind square one. So that's why when we're talking about coming off the pill, you know, a lot of um, a lot of doctors and practitioners will say, you know, you can just stop taking the pill. You don't need to do anything else. Well, like, yes, you can just stop taking the pill, but you would be better served really looking at all of the things that are depleted while you're on the pill and really starting like a solid supplement regime because you're not going to get them through nutrition. I, I know you're not. So really looking at supplementing all of those things post-pill as well to help and minimise that post-pill PCOS length that you may actually have as well. So quick question then off the back of that, everything that you've just said regarding the pill and other hormonal contraceptives, diminishing vital nutrients within the body. With PMDD, if obviously a large impact of that is or a large kind of dependency of that is a lack of nutrients that, that serve this. So are you saying potentially that, uh, let me rephrase the question, are you seeing mostly people with PMDD, people who have previously been on the pill, and you think that's probably a large sort of side effect of the pill when they come off it and they're trying to regain in their cycle, or do you see this in women who have never taken any hormonal contraceptives as well? Or is it much more common with people who've spent time on hormonal contraceptives and you think that's a big sort of cause factor to it? Oh, we've got a little bit of a frozen Olivia there. There we go, she's back. She's back. I'm back. I'm sorry. I'm not. I'm, I don't know what happened there. Um, you were saying, do you see this in people in in women who have been on the pill, who haven't been on the pill, or both? Yeah, That's essentially. I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm essentially saying, is do you are you seeing it a lot more in people coming off the pill, and you think that the pill is a big factor of that because of you know the the diminishing of, of vital nutrients in the body, or or are you seeing this just in in random selections of women, or or do you think that is is quite dependent on that? I mean, it's both. Um, it's it's absolutely something I see in women who have come off of the pill, but I also have a lot of women who have never been on the pill and suffer with this. I also have a lot of women who don't have PMDD but take a B6 supplement and it just helps with their PMS symptoms. So it's not quite PMDD. They're not suicidal. They, they're not uncontrollable with their emotions, but they get really just you know, de de depressed, I don't want to take away from the severity of depression, but they just get a bit depressed um, during that period and then they start taking B6 and they're, they're feeling much better. So it's absolutely both coming off the pill and there are just women who are 
depleted in B6 and never been on the, the pill because we're looking also at, you know, nutrients in food, soil quality, how processed our diets are now. Um, and we're then also factoring in that individuals are going to have variations in some of their serotonin receptors. So they will have genetic mutations, variations in how that serotonin binds to those receptors. So there's also that component. So there are some, some women who unfortunately will just have to go that extra mile. And it's the same thing that when we're talking about, you know, women who have issues with their cycle where one woman does everything wrong and never sees an issue with her cycle is fertile myrtle. And then you have women who do everything right and then properly right and struggle to conceive. And, you, and you're going, what the hell is going on here? And they're just unfortunately dealing with some issues in terms of genetic variations, how their hormones are built, how they're excreted um, and how everything is processed in their body. So yeah, there's there's a lot of um, lot of factors to it, and unfortunately, a lot of women who have PMDD don't even know about B6. They don't even know that they have PMDD because no one's ever taken it seriously, or they've never even realised that that's what it is. You know, my client with um, her bipolar diagnosis, and this is going back, you know, how many years where I didn't even think to to question what what a client is telling me that I've been given a bipolar diagnosis. Okay. Let's, let's work with that. Um, but, yeah, there's a lot of women who don't even know they have PMDD or that they should be taking B6 for PMDD. So if someone came to you then, because I've got a friend who messaged me off the back of one of our first episodes and said, look, I've, I've only ever told one person that I suffer with PMDD because she felt so ashamed of the thoughts she was having every month and the fact that she has a young son and she was like, I can't. But she, and when she gets over that hump, she's like, oh, I can't believe I felt like that. I'd never do something like that because it's so selfish. And then she runs through that cycle of guilt. So if someone came to you with PMDD and was like, how can I best manage this? Earlier on, you said that often they're put on the pill. Would that be something that although we've talked about the pill in such a negative light that PMDD is so bad that you would put them on the pill? No, I, I personally wouldn't. Um, the only time I support the use of the pill is if women are in abusive relationships and don't have control around the sex that they have. That's the only time that I can honestly hand on my heart say this is taking this and what happens with the negatives that happen with it is probably better than the the other outcome, which would be an unwanted pregnancy in an mm -hmm. abusive relationship. Everything else, everything else, and I mean it, can be fixed without the pill. And knowing that you're going to be in a worse off position when you come off of the pill than you were before you went on the pill, it's just not worth it to me. So how would you go about working with someone that has been diagnosed with PMDD or just someone you believe, even if they haven't been diagnosed, but from what they've said, you think that they have it? So I'm going straight to B6. It depends on the severity of what they've told me as far as symptoms, straight to B6, either all cycle or after ovulation. 
and the dosage again depends on the individual. I've had some clients go up to 250 milligrams. I have some clients staying around 70, 75 milligrams. It just depends. Um, and also magnesium. So magnesium glycinate as opposed to like an oxide or a citrate or anything like that that's going to agitate the stomach. And those two over the space of about three cycles, we start to see huge improvements. So I think it's also important to note that a lot of people will, with any supplement, I should say, don't get immediate results and go, oh, well, this didn't work. Particularly with menstrual cycles, it takes a minimum of one to three cycles where you change one thing to see if that's had an impact. Okay. A lot of painful periods that women experience are actually because of alcohol. And alcohol is a really tricky one to take away from everyone. People love a vino. People love a beer. It's really hard to take it away from them. And I'm telling you that you have to stop drinking for at least one to three cycles, so up to three months, to see the benefit of it potentially. It's really hard to, to swallow. So it's the same thing with all of these supplements. You're looking at longer periods where you need to be taking them. You might not feel good or any benefit initially, but you still have to keep taking it because we're potentially talking about huge depletions in our micronutrient status and reserves where we actually need therapeutic doses to, to boost them back up. Like you don't have enough to do your normal systems and processes and functions for the day and then you need that extra bit to, to go that extra little mile. I think that's really helpful actually um, because I'm sure there's people that there is a few um, quite a couple of, of well-known bikini pros actually that do suffer with PMDD that are quite open about it and I think that they um, people are quite open now about expressing these things I think and people are better about sharing their stories and sharing you know me and Hannah sharing our stories at the moment with you know there's quite an open environment I do feel or it's opening up for people to be able to share this stuff and I think that if people do have this and they're hearing this and they you know they can use certain supplements that you're maybe recommending Olivia and seeing good results they can talk about that and actually share good stories um, and I think that that advice that you've just given there is probably advice that people don't have or haven't been given. Um, I'm not aware of, you know, me and Hannah don't suffer with these, you know, PCOS or PMDD specifically. And we've got our own other issues, but I've not heard of people say, oh, yeah, well, I've got PMDD. So I supplement with this and it really helps. Like, yeah. that's not really something that is shared. And we've had a lot of questions when we put question boxes up on Instagram and when no one's really given that sort of advice. It's been more questions of, okay, well, I've got this, so what does that mean? Or how does that affect my bodybuilding? Or how does that affect this? And what can I do about that? So there isn't a lot of answers for people. So I think that's really helpful. And if anyone listening to this does suffer in, in general with, you know, PCOS, PMDD, and, and any menstrual symptoms that, you know, from coming off the pill, as Olivia's alluded to, try supplementing with zinc and magnesium and vitamin B6 and see if these symptoms start to relieve after one to three months and see and see how things go for you. But I think that's a really good bit of advice. I think it's really important as well to say like three months because we're all so impatient, aren't we? In the world that we live in, we expect things to happen yesterday. Oh, well, I took that yeah. pill. OK, 10 minutes. Am I feeling good? No, like it doesn't work like that. Um, but a lot of people would give up if their first period or their second period or cycle, whatever you want to phrase it as, if they didn't felt feel they 
overall felt better, they'd probably go, oh, that's not working for me. I'll get rid of that. Try something else. Um, so I think that's yeah. really important to say. Like, Give it a good three months. Don't drink during that time. Um, three months to not have a drink is not a long time. People just need to take a step back and think it's three months of no booze to see if that helps or it's 30 years of my life in pain. Like, just let's get things in order here, people. It's no wine for three months. Let's calm down. This is going out at a good time as well. It's Christmas in it's Christmas in two weeks, so this is going out at a perfect time for everyone's January detox. Yeah, dry jam. Come on, people. Dry and dry jam, Feb and March. Let's go. We'll come up with some catchy things for February and March and keep people strong. <laughs> I'm I'm here for it. I, I love pretty stuff. Um, I think that was like I say, I learned a lot just then about PMDD. Um, I think the the main takeaway from that was there is hope um, and I think that's something that's been laced into everything that you've spoken to us about Olivia um, that nothing's ever as final as people are made to potentially think it is um, but yeah that's that's been really really helpful I, I'm normally really good at flowing these things but there's two things that aren't connected to anything we've been talking about really but they're they're on my list for things that I want to talk to you about on this episode um and the first one was in the last uh podcast that we had you on um we talked about the injection um which you just put in the chat so that i could seem really educated um depo depo provera that's it nailed that nailed that nailed that in one go yeah specialist no i'm joking but um, obviously we talked about that the last time and you said that it was the worst one. But we didn't have a huge amount of time in to get into every topic. So I kind of wanted to open that up a little bit and be like, well, why is that the worst one? Because there are more women on the Depo-Provera injection than I realised. I thought that was like, to be honest, oh, this is going to sound really stupid of me, but... Who gives a fuck we're here anyway? In a Fifty Shades of Grey, she gets put on the injection. And I was like, no one's on the injection. Everyone's just on the pill or the implant. And actually, since... And, and when she missed it and got pregnant... Sorry, spoiler alert for anyone. Um, I was like, well, obviously you'd miss it and get pregnant. I'd forget about something like that every bloody time. I'd never remember. I'd never get the time off work to go and get it done um and I would just forget so yeah I was like no one's on it but in actual fact loads of women are on it I've realized since starting this podcast Hannah that so many people are on the injection so so many people I thought it was a little bit of an ancient thing I thought it was something that women took years ago until there was until microgynons started being popped into people's pockets like genuine genuinely I thought that it was it was a very old thing it more out of convenience than anything and all the horror stories that you hear about the, the injection makes you fat so I just thought it just wasn't a thing anymore but I think I um, Olivia's like, got more horror stories about it but yeah I, I, I don't even know anyone on it everyone I knew in school or in my 20s was pill or implant 
And now all of these girls are flooding in my DMs like, yeah, I have my injection every three months. And I'm like, what? This is really like commonplace. So when you said it's the worst one, I've got alarm bells going off. Like there are a lot of women on this and you're saying it's the worst one. So I want to know why. How long have you got? <laughs> um, oh, God, where do I start? Um, so got I about 10 minutes. A, <laughs> 10 minutes. Oh, God, it, it, I'll try and take a breath and get through it. So... <laughs> Depo-Provera, um, it's a long-lasting long lasting hormonal birth control. The reason, there are a lot of reasons I say it's the worst one, but one of the reasons I say it's the worst one is because once it's in, there is no one doing it. If you start taking the pill and you have a negative reaction, you stop taking it. If you get the implant on or an IUD and everything is going to shit, you can get it removed. Once that shot is in, it is in. There is no one doing it. Depo-Provera is used to chemically castrate sex offenders, obviously in different dosages. Um, it is used to manage aggression in male cats that are uncastrated. Depo-Provera has the biggest impact on our bone mineral density, so much so that they actually had to put a black box warning on it and women can't use it for more than two years because they see such a huge decrease in bone mineral density. When they compared teens taking Depo-Provera to teens who were not taking Depo-Provera, there was on average a 1.5% um, bone mineral density loss in teens versus a 2% gain in teens who were not using it. After four years of use, on average, we see about 7.5% bone mineral density loss. The fertility outcomes of Depo-Provera, post-Depo-Provera, are at their lowest, where we typically see a return to full fertility after about 18 months, on average about 10. And that's why, like, you know, when you were saying about um, Fifty Shades of Grey, I was like, oh, God, what kind of subliminal messaging fuckery was this? That, you know, go get your shot and then three months miss your shot by one week and you're pregnant. That's not how it happens. And so a lot of women will, you know, take the shot, think they can stop taking it up until the point they want to get pregnant. And then, surprise, you actually can't get pregnant because fertility outcomes are the worst. A lot of women experience really constant heavy bleeding and spotting while on it. And so obviously you can't un undo that. Like I said, once it's in, it's in. And then we also need to look at, we, so the pill has a really dark history in terms of like the women it was tested on and how they actually got through the whole FDA process. Depo-Provera has the same thing. They were testing it in third world countries before the FDA actually approved it in 1992. And they actually studied it on for 11 years in poor black women in Atlanta but they had really bad reporting processes of all of all of the things they found. So it basically got um, put in put in the bin there. But Depo-Provera has a really awful history in terms of like how it came to be. And I just genuinely look at it and it's like with all of the effects and what we see on bone mineral density. And we know that bone mineral density is so important for women. We see osteoarthritis increasing after menopause for women. We see a lot of women with bone mineral density issues anyway because of issues with estrogen 
and then they're given Depo Provera. Um, so I I cannot like whereas with some of the other contraceptives, obviously if you look at it with a really unbiased lens, you can say here is the positive, can't get pregnant, here is the positive. If your period is not as heavy, here is the positive. It's not as painful, your PMDD, whatever. There's a decrease in certain cancers. There's an increase in other cancers. Whereas with Depo Provera, there is nothing that to me is a positive about it. And it's easy for a lot of women because they go get a shot, don't have to think about it. But it is absolutely the worst, worst one of the bunch. And I do not understand how it is still available. And I know they still use it a lot in African countries, obviously for population control. They still use it and they give incentives for women to use Depo Provera in poorer countries but it's just I mean that to me is sickening in itself but it's just the absolute worst of worst of the bunch and I my my hope is that in my lifetime I would see a mass exodus of women from Depo Provera I would see I would say that in Australia it's not as popular of a hormonal birth control However, obviously, when you're looking at worldwide statistics, it's a lot more popular in a lot of other countries. Um, like I said in the first podcast, you know, I was a little bit surprised when I first started um, doing consults with clients from the UK where I was like, oh, they don't really know much in terms of women's health. And it's the same thing where it's like, you know, this this is just something that they they don't know. They go and get the shot, don't have to think about it. Um, but yeah, it's it's really bad. It's it's not something that I would ever in a million years recommend or support. I am actually shocked. Yeah. How excuse my French, how the fuck is that approved for use? That is wild. Um, it's when you look at like the whole FDA process and how things get approved. A lot of the time they had um, investigations into the pill um, Yasmin and, and one of the hormones that they were using in there. Um, can't, honestly, it's, the, the specific one is just out of my brain at the moment. Um, but they did investigations into it and when they were talking about reviewing it, it got passed as, as no issue. And the... Um, the advisors on the committee, some of them had direct interests in the generic brands who produce Yasmin, and then others had other ties. So you're looking at, at people who directly benefit from something that we know is creating blood clots for women. They're directly benefiting from it. So what, what incentive do they have to take it off the market? So it's everything that I look at like that. Um, yeah, that, that's how it's on the market. And it's just... They they actually, when they did a investigation into Depo Provera initially before it got produced, they saw that it increased certain cancers in dogs when they tested them on it. Um, and the, the, the case they were making was, well, you know, it's, it's dogs, it's not human. Um, and the argument back was, okay, but if there was no increase in cancer or no cancer before and then they started taking it, then obviously it's increasing certain cancer risks. So... Yeah, I just, it's its an absolutely disgusting one, in my opinion, and I, I cannot not be unbiased in it because there's nothing that's, that's positive for me about it. It's mental. 
I think it's um it's it's quite sickening and I think this is why it's so important to do things like this to just give a little bit of insight and education to people so they understand what they are doing and what they are putting in their bodies because like you say these things are on the market because someone someone benefits from everything like it's still a product that is purchased and it's the same reason why cigarettes are still sold over the counter. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Somebody's making money out of that. You know, they kill people. There is no be- there is no positive with that, apart from the fact that it creates cash. Like, it's a moneymaker. And, yeah, it's pretty disgusting, really. So I think I'd just it just comes back confident. to this lack of education, doesn't it? It just comes back to this lack yeah. of, like, informed decision-making that women are not able to have because they don't have the the education because they're not told this stuff um and this is why like super grateful to you olivia like coming on and sharing this stuff but yeah. i just wish we could just shout this a little bit more from the rooftops for people um it's awful i i would I be really confident in saying that if if one woman listening to this podcast knew any of that i would be genuinely shocked and I don't oh, ever oh. want to tell anyone what to do, ever. But in this instance, if you are listening to this and you are on that fucking injection, get it out immediately. Cancel the next appointment. Don't use it anymore. Because if you're willing to put that shit in your body, you really need to just just think through where you want to where you want your health to be. Like the fact that you opened that, Olivia, with they use this for chemical castration. Bone density's fucked. Chemical castration. Like they've tested this on women in third world countries. They've made it beneficial, like financially beneficial to test this product on them. And and then to top all of that off. Oh, by the way, it can um, increase tumours. It can give you cancer. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Um, it's the, and it's difficult because obviously, like you know, there's a lot of women who are on a form of hormonal birth control who aren't quite like there's um a lot of women who take it for contraceptive purposes or any hormonal birth control, and then in their mind, they're just not quite ready to potentially get pregnant. So they go from one to the other, um, you know, the shot to straight to the pill, for example, um. And I genuinely look at it and I'm like, you know, if you really are in that that place mentally and you just don't have the mental capacity to not be on something, even though we know that there are fertility awareness methods who have just as high of an efficacy as um, the pill, for example, if you really are in that, that position, just switch to a different hormonal birth control. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if you are on the Depo-Provera shot, you shouldn't be on it for more than two years. And, you know, it's, it's even though we say here two years, there are some women who are going to have effects of this much sooner than that. But you're not doing bone mineral density scans or anything like that consistently while you're on it. You're just going and getting your shot. So if you are on it, my hope would be that you go, okay, you know, that's I didn't know any of this stuff. My doctor didn't speak to to me about any of this. I'm going to make a different decision. And if you are, great. Um, but if you do want to stay on it, you shouldn't be on it for more than two years because some of those bone mineral density losses, although we see them coming back after a while in some cases, 
some women see huge losses of bone mineral density, which may not be recovered, even though some women, the majority of women do see a recovery of that over a few years. Some women don't at all. Mm. So, and that's super important when we're talking about your life, right? We're, we're talking about how are you going to feel when you are in your 50s, when you're in your 60s? Are you going to be that old lady who can't walk up a set of stairs? Um, or are you going to be that old lady that's like going two at a time up those stairs? I think we have to remember as well that things like bone density and you you talked it's talked about a lot when you're a child like oh get your calcium in while you're growing because that's the most important time you know once you get and I'm not saying it's too far gone once you're older but while you are growing up through adolescence especially through your 20s as well like making sure that you know we're looking after things like your bone density ensuring that we're not making these things worse and we're actually trying to make them better at that moment in time is actually really really important because you do get to a point where once you're developed and you get past a certain age like it's not going to improve like if anything it's only going to go downhill as you get older so there is a cutoff point there as well and I think that's important to touch on for people especially you know I know a lot of people who go on a hormonal contraceptive because they're with a partner and they've been with a partner since they were 17 18 and they're with them three or four years or something and they break up with said partner and then they might be single for years and they just continue to take their hormonal contraceptive like oh well I was on it so I just continue and I'm like that is probably the most important time for you to actually not like okay you took it while you were you know you were developing through your adolescence now you're not like okay well now you don't even need to take it from a hormonal birth control point of view so just don't like just allow your body that 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 time to to at least try and regulate and I think that's important people get so people just get so comfortable with what they're doing and that's their norm they just keep going to pick up their pill or keep going to get their shots and it's like for what like why and I think if people knew the negatives it was having you know at least in some ways if it's for hormonal birth control people can weigh that up a little bit and say well what's worse you know I don't want to have a baby right now and maybe they justify that in their head but especially when you don't need it for that like there is literally zero benefit from being on being on that hormonal contraceptive Mm. and off the the back of that just talking about that structure um that people find themselves in and they go like well this is what I have been doing so I'll keep doing it if someone was going to come off the pill and Mads is something that people have said to you and to me um where they say well I'll just finish my pill packet and then and then I'll then I'll come off of it I've got four left in this packet so I'll just finish that so Olivia if someone was saying that is that a good idea to finish the pill packet or are they better off um I don't know just stopping there and then like what what, because in the last episode we talked about that well once you finish you should be tracking roughly where you expect to have your next bleed to then know where you are in your cycle um so yeah would you say finish the pill packet or would you say just forget about it for tomorrow and just just crack on from there I mean when you go off track with your diet do you go, I'm going to start again on Monday or should you just go, nah, tomorrow, I'm, I'm fucking reeling it in. We know that we go tomorrow, no, I'm reeling it in. Whereas a lot of people go, nah, I'll just I'll start on Monday. Um, 
in terms of the pill packet, the reason a lot of women say I'm just going to finish off the pill packet is because they know when they stop taking that pill, they're going to get their period um, or a bleed. It's not, their, it's not their period because period is from ovulation. This is just a breakthrough bleed. So they know they're going to get a breakthrough bleed. They might have just had a breakthrough bleed two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and they're like, oh, well, I don't fucking want another one when I know I can push it out for another four days, five days, another two weeks, for example. Um, but really there is no reason not to just stop taking it. There is nothing that is going to happen. You might have a breakthrough bleed a little bit sooner than, than you did, you know, more you would have if you left it, but that's it. Um, yeah, if you want to stop taking it, stop taking it from then. And then as soon as you have your bleed, you mark that as cycle day one. So you're starting from the very beginning and then if you're tracking your basal temperature and you know when you've ovulated, then with your next bleed, that is your cycle day one of your next bleed. So that first cycle might be 30, 60, 90, 120, 200, 300 days, or it might be two months, one month. It depends because the dosage that they actually give you in the pill is enough to elicit a response. It might not be enough for some women to completely suppress ovulation. You know, you do have women who get pregnant when on the pill. Um, so for some women, they might take the pill and then the next month they ovulate, no problem, whereas the overwhelming majority wouldn't. So, yeah, just stop taking it. There's no reason other than you're obviously just going to have a bleed a little bit sooner. Um, so I do understand that because it can be, like especially if you've gone on a holiday or something like that, you're like, oh, no, nah, I'll, I'll push it out. I've, I've got my, you know, whatever booked. But, yeah, there's no reason. I think, like, when I've had um, a couple of conversations with people and they go, well, I've got like four left, I'll finish those, I always wonder if it's just that that structure that we've had for so long that we just go, well, no, I must I must complete said cycle. There is 30 here and I must take the 30. Oh, wow, I can't remember. It's been such a long time since I took them. Um but is it, I, I, yeah, I wonder if it's less about them thinking or being told they have to do it and it's more just we're so used to following the rules that we'll continue to follow the rule. Absolutely. I definitely think that's a component. I also think a component would be that you're wasting money if you don't finish off the packet. I definitely think that some people go, well, I pay for this. Why would I throw out half a good packet? Um, yeah, I absolutely think that I that's think ours is factor. free. You pay for your prescription, don't you? So your prescription's maybe like seven or eight quid for however however long it's prescribed for. Um, oh, I thought the pill was free. No, I think you still pay for your prescription. I did when I had my little three-month stint, I think. But I think as well there's an anxiety around it because people are coming away from it. There almost isn't a choice if they finish the packet. It's like, okay, well you've delayed the choice a little bit and you wait till the packet's over and then you decide to not take it anymore because you finish the packet and there's no there isn't any left so you're like okay well I guess today's the day <laughs> yeah if you yeah. decide like halfway through the packet I think it's a bit more of a conscious decision that people don't want to make um so I think it's easier for people to put it off until the end of the packet and you're right like if you ask them why they'd be like well I don't really know why but in their head it makes sense Mm. there's a great uncertainty whereas obviously when you're taking the pill you know what to expect you have been taking it for so long 
Whereas when you come off the pill, what am I going to experience? Am I going to be bleeding all the time? What, what am I going to feel like? There's, there's a great uncertainty and, and I absolutely um, I absolutely understand that. You know, it's like when someone's trying to get out of a relationship, sometimes they don't just do it straight away. They have to wait for like a mental marker in their head for when they're ready to actually do it and, and get out. So I, I do understand, but from a... Um, from like a perspective of is there any benefit to finishing it off or anything like that? No, none, none whatsoever. Okay, that is good to know. Clearing that up. So if any of you's lot listening are the ones that have said, I just, I'm just going to finish the packet. You've heard it now from the specialist, the doula herself. Put it in the bin. You don't need it. In the bin. You don't. Good. Okay, I think that's all of my questions for this episode. And I am conscious that I have had more than enough time from you, Olivia. I'm so, so grateful for everything um, that you've talked to us about, all the education you've passed on, all the advice um, and your experience as well. Um, Mads, is there anything that you wanted to tag on the end of this episode with Olivia? No, I don't think so. I think I just want to say thank you as well. And I think that everybody listening has really enjoyed listening to this. I think the feedback we got from I don't know if you had any messages Olivia after last week but the messages we had after last week have been really really positive even just explaining in depth a little bit more about what people maybe don't understand even just about their cycle and answering a few questions has been really really helpful so yeah I just want to say thank you and if we ever need anything hopefully you're just a dm away and we can ask away on instagram (laughs) I, I absolutely am just a DM away and about 10 hours difference. So. <laughs> and if someone did no, drop you great. a DM, where are they going to find you? Please, please do. So I'm the lifting doula um, and what I've been working on is Femtech, the basal body ring that we mentioned in the last one. So that's where you can also follow um, I post some um, women's health info there in between everything. So fem.tek. So those are the two places you can find me. And a lot of girls actually, like friends-wise, I've bumped into in the gym or whatever, they ask me about um, what I call the temperature method. And I was like, no, this is legit. Like, go check it out. So if you aren't sure of what that looks like or what to Google or anything else like that, just go straight to Femtech. Have a look at Olivia's page. Um, If you've got any questions, DM her about it. Like, She's the one that's creating the product, the ring um, for tracking your basal temperature um and yeah as I say I know people that have used it both to stop pregnancy and to get pregnant so it is legit we don't need to be putting these hormones into our bodies if you're on the injection no no just 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 stop that immediately please if I leave this world with one thing it's that people will stop getting that bastard injection I feel better now. That would be that would be my hope as well. Preach it, preach it. I feel a petition coming on there. I said it. We could probably start one one in the bodybuilding. We could probably start one in the bodybuilding world, Hannah. We probably could. Imagine if we got signed off. That'd be sick. I'm doing it Monday morning. It's first thing on the list. Right, everyone. Injection gone. (laughs) Busy Monday morning ahead yeah you could start it now and get 10 hours on us olivia i absolutely could (laughs) (laughs) um as i say thank you so much 
um for the last two episodes um it, it really does mean a lot that you've given up the time and also the experience education knowledge and everything else so thank you very much for that and um, we will put uh your instagram links in the description of this podcast so if anyone can't remember where olivia the lifting doula um, can be found then just scroll down have a look at the description and you'll find her there as well as femtech mads and myself and until next time thank you very much for listening um see you in the next episode <laughs>